Our New Testament reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verse 14 through 30. And it is our sermon text as we continue to preach verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask for me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give to you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in and immediately, with haste, to the king, and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison, and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When the disciples heard it, they came and took his body and laid it in the tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, speak. Your servants are listening. We need ears to hear your word this morning, so grant them. Grant us faith to trust them. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Quite the text this morning. Our gospel text calls us to do something we rarely do anymore. It has us look at the de-idealized, unsanitized world we live in. And it's going to provide us a stark and negative example we're supposed to learn from. We don't do this much anymore. We are usually more comfortable to learn from positive and inspiring examples. On social media, people share their best. We look for role models and stories to tell our children. Something's helpful to us if it's positive and encouraging. Well, this is not a preference shared by most of human history. Human literature from across space and time always tell tragedies. And in fact, historically, most children's stories were once morality tales, 
with negative examples warning kids, usually to be good. Right? Pinocchio was originally a story that's message was bad things happen to bad children. Little Chicken ended with Little Chicken and his friends being eaten by a fox to teach you the lesson to never spread false rumors. But it's not just children's stories, of course, that are like this. Greek tragedies, Shakespeare's plays like Romeo and Juliet, modern musicals like Les Miserables, all tell stories of life from our de-idealized world. And stories like this resonate in every culture and time because human suffering is a universal experience. And as you may know, the Bible itself is full of these kinds of stories. Genesis 3 warns us through the story of original sin. Exodus warns us of the danger of opposing God from the destruction of Pharaoh. We learn the danger of the lack of faith from the Israelites being stuck in the wilderness for 40 years. Saul and most of the Israelite kings who follow him are nothing but negative examples you're supposed to try and avoid. And we need these examples because we don't, our problem in the world isn't that we're just living suboptimal lives. We don't just need a strategy or two to help us achieve a little more success. No, we live in a world of real sin. And so you better learn to recognize it. You better learn to recognize it in you, especially. And to do this, the Gospel of Mark takes us into Herod's court. It takes our eyes off Jesus for a moment so that we will see and stare at the reality of our sinful world. The story picks up when Herod hears about Jesus' name and his miracles. It seems like the news of Jesus and his miracles are spreading far and wide. Apparently, the apostles' ministry that Jesus has just sent them out to do, to preach and perform miracles, has been so effective that news of Jesus has made its way all the way up into the halls of power. And this ministry has left Herod with the same question as everyone else. So who is this Jesus, and where is he getting this power? But Herod is haunted by the question. The supernatural events Herod is hearing about don't cause him to wonder, don't cause him to believe, but they cause him to dread. Herod is afraid of something worse than ghosts. He's afraid that maybe, just maybe, John the Baptist might have come back from the dead. Because you see, Herod has some skeletons in his closet, doesn't he? And he's afraid of what the implications for him would be if John the Baptist is back from the dead. And so Mark stops and tells us the backstory of Herod and John. The man referred to as King Herod in this story is not really a king and is not the only Herod in the Bible. His father, Herod the Great, had been the much more famous king of Judah in his lifetime. He ruled on behalf of the Roman Empire and is famous for his great rebuilding and expanding of the temple. So he was popular with many, but he was also a tyrant and a brutal king. Herod the Great is the Herod from the Christmas story who killed all the male babies when Jesus was born. This is not that Herod. This is his much less impressive, immoral, but just as tyrannical son, Herod Antipas. See, when Herod the Great died, he divided rule of Judah into four between his three sons and his sister. Herod Antipas had the title of Tetrarch, which means ruler of a quarter. He ruled the region of Galilee where Jesus and his, lived and his ministry took place. 
And this Herod had an ongoing conflict with the prophet John. Mark's gospel opens with John preaching that the Jews, even the chosen people of God, must repent for their sins. And in this story, we learn John the Baptist did not stop at preaching to the masses, but he brought the message of repentance to even their sinful rulers, like Herod. John preached against Herod's immoral and adulterous marriage. We learn from history that Herod, while visiting his brother Philip, one of his half-brothers, became infatuated with his brother's wife and convinced her that together they would leave their spouses and be married. And John the Baptist arrived to confront this obvious public sin in a high place. And Herod, well, he couldn't have John out preaching against his sin and continue his relationship with Herodias. So he imprisoned John. And his new wife became bitter. The text says she had a grudge against John and wanted him dead. See, she knew her status and their relationship were not secure as long as John was alive. I mean, what if Herod listened to the prophet eventually? Now, we don't know exactly why Herod didn't want to execute John. Could it be because he feared the people of Galilee, with whom John was very popular? Did keeping John alive make Herod feel a bit better? Maybe he didn't see eye to eye with John on all these relationship things, but he would never hurt someone so holy, so righteous like John. But Herodias knew her husband's flaws and weakness, and so she waited until the opportunity presented itself. The details here about this party are very specific. To any Jewish reader, they would know Herod is throwing a feast like the unbelieving pagans do. Herodias, his wife, isn't there, but her daughter is, pleasing Herod and his guests through dancing. Herod's lust and love for power flares again at the party and makes a foolish promise. He promises his stepdaughter up to half his kingdom if she wants it. And this was the opportunity her mother was looking for, to settle the score with this troublesome prophet. And she's willing to sacrifice her daughter's integrity and well-being for it. She tells her, get me John the Baptist's head. And she does. Herod is clearly sobered up a bit by this request. This wasn't something he was prepared to do. But his sin, his addiction, now, as it always does, is leading to death. And so Herod, afraid to appear weak and break his word under the influence, grants her request and has John executed. He saves his face but loses his soul. John's loyal friends come and care for his body. And Herod's conscience is so guilty over the encounter that when he hears of a new miraculous ministry in Galilee, he's worried his story with John the Baptist may not be over. That death didn't settle things. This is the kind of world God is at work in. And so this story reminds us of three things. The cost to be Christ's disciple. That we will end up like Herod if we do not repent. And that Christ's reward of resurrection is worth any earthly cost. Because Jesus' victory comes by resurrection, we should be willing to pay whatever the earthly costs. Again, there's a cost to be Christ's disciple. There's a cost we must pay that Herod wouldn't. And Christ's reward is worth it. First, Let's focus on the cost to participate in Jesus' mission. 
John the Baptist's death alerts us the cost of Christ's mission. You see, these verses about John immediately follow Jesus sending out the apostles. They're given authority from Jesus to preach, to cast out demons and heal the sick. And then after John's story, in verse 30, we return to Jesus, where he listens to his disciples' ministry report. But smack dab in the middle of that story, we get this story about Herod and John the Baptist. And we never get a detailed report from the apostles about what they did. Why? It's because it's actually John's story that is essential to understand what it means to join in the ministry of Jesus. And from John's story, we learn two essential truths about Christian ministry. All his messengers must preach repentance, and all of them must be willing to suffer for it, the message. The ministry of John and Jesus and the disciples are one in this regard. They are all an extension of the same mission, the same kingdom. I mean, we learn this from Herod's reaction about Jesus. Herod hears about Jesus, and it's not that he thinks a new prophet is there and going to cause him trouble. No, to him it sounds exactly the same thing is happening. It's just like John again. And somehow it's continuing. And of course, this is the point of why Jesus would send out his disciples, right? They go out with Jesus' authority to extend his ministry. So Jesus delegates some of his authority to the apostles so they can preach and practice his supernatural power. And they share in a ministry that John had before them. They are all preachers of repentance. Mark 6.16 said, The apostles were told to go out and tell people they should repent. Jesus, at the beginning of the gospel, his ministry was summarized as saying, repent and believe the gospel. And of course, John had been confronting Herod about adultery. The message of repentance is a prerequisite to any faithful ministry. If there is a ministry with no demand for repentance, whatever is, happen- whatever is happen- happening, I'm sorry, whatever is happening, good or bad, it is not the ministry of Jesus Christ, his apostles, or John. If there is no repentance preached, it is not their ministry. So what is repentance? The Puritan divine Thomas Watson described repentance as a grace whereby God's spirit, an, a sinner, is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. Repentance is a true change of heart. And this change results in an outward show of change. You acknowledge you are heading in the wrong direction, and so you turn around. Both elements are necessary for true repentance. Repentance is not just conforming to the right rules. And repentance is not just feeling really, really bad about something with no outward change. And this is why John's preaching serves as a model for us. The theologian John Calvin described John's ministry this way. We behold in John an example of moral courage, which every godly teacher should possess. They should not hesitate to incur the wrath of the great and powerful as often as it may be necessary. For he who makes an acceptance of certain people does not honestly serve God. John preached repentance no matter the cost, no matter the stakes. Because if we only preach against sins that are easy to preach against and pull back from confronting certain sins because it will cause us trouble, with the great and powerful, or it will damage relationships or our reputations, then Calvin is right. We are not really serving God, are we? 
And so we often try and find ways to address the problems of the world without repentance. But if sin is at its root, what's bad about the world, we will never get anywhere without it. John here is in a conflict with a political ruler, maybe you noticed. Because political rulers are not exempt from needing to repent. In fact, the amount of leaders and rulers who are at Herod's party tells us the elite in that day were pretty corrupt. But notice how John handles the confrontation. He isn't trying to start a political action committee. He doesn't start a plan to remove Herod from office. He doesn't start a political party or try and get out the vote. He also doesn't try and become good friends with Herod. So maybe later Herod will listen to him, give him a hearing. Not that all of these things are wrong. Christians, of course, as service to their neighbors, should be involved in the political process. But the unique contribution of Christians to the public square is this. We acknowledge sin. The problems we have personally and publicly are sin. And you don't vote your way out of sin. Your New Year's resolutions won't help you with sin. They can't relieve you. The only relief is repentance and finding full forgiveness of every kind in Jesus' name. That's the first thing John teaches us. The other thing John's ministry teaches us is that if you want to be part of Jesus' mission, you must be willing to suffer. John displays that Christ's mission may come with the cost of martyrdom. Suffering on account of the gospel is part of discipleship. This is what Jesus will make clear in Mark 8. He says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If you are going to follow Jesus Christ, you are following him to a cross. You are following to suffering and maybe death. And suffering for the mission makes sense if you're really going to preach repentance because it puts you at odds with a sinful world. It may put you at odds with those who have power over you. It may put you at odds with those who you are close to or the current cultural values or ideologies. It did for John, who shows us the cost to be part of Jesus' mission. Second, we need to see the cost of true discipleship. There's something very, very unusual about this story. It's told from Herod's point of view. The story gives so much focus on what Herod is thinking, feeling, experiencing, saying. Herod will teach us the cost of entry to the Christian faith by the fact that he doesn't. Because our own personal repentance is required for true discipleship and peace with God. And so we must learn this lesson this morning from an evil king. There is a principle of Bible interpretation I learned a long time ago from R.C. Sproul Jr. It goes like this. Whenever you see someone in the Bible doing something really stupid, don't say, how could they be so stupid? Ask, how am I stupid just like them? Because it's relatively easy to see how immoral Herod is, right? He is in an adulterous and incestuous marriage. But we need to ask this question. How could I be stupid in the same way Herod is? Our text portrays Herod this way. He is a tortured soul, enslaved by sinful lusts, fearful of the opinions of man, hiding behind a thin veneer of religion. So we must ask, could I be controlled by my sinful desires, manipulated by the fear of man, and hiding behind a superficial spirituality? 
First, Herod is led into greater and greater sin by his own lusts. It starts with Herod just wanting to have peace with Herodias. Doesn't want any conflict there, so he locks up John. And Herod wanted to keep John alive, but because he's controlled by his lusts for power, pleasure, and women, his addiction gives way to murder. Because when push really comes to shove, doing the right thing would be too costly. The price, though, in the end, wasn't just John's life, but Herod's soul. And this whole tragedy ensues because Herod is controlled by sin and it makes him weak. Herod, like many, chooses sin over God. And like many people, even in the church today, Herod chose to torture his conscience by trying to find some balance between Christianity and his own sinful desire. Second, Herod is afraid of the opinion of others. And so he could be manipulated and pressured into worse and worse sin and crime. In the reality, Herod is the king of none and the slave of all. Herod is unable to protect John because of it. He's unwilling to experience conflict in his sinful relationship with Herodias. He's unwilling to lose face at his party so his stepdaughter can pressure him into murder. Herod is the guy always choosing the path of least resistance. And obedience to Christ will be pretty much impossible if we always stop and ask, well, what will people think if I do this? And we will always be susceptible to their manipulation. But there is one other very important way you might be like Herod I want you to see. Herod has a kind of spirituality. It's superficial. It can't deal with his sin or bring in peace with God. But Herod would have viewed himself as a fairly spiritual guy. First, notice Herod has a reverence for Jesus. He has a high opinion of John. When Herod hears the news of Jesus, he really believed the miraculous powers were at work in Jesus' life. And look at verse 20 again. Herod feared John, knowing he was a righteous and holy man, and kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet heard him gladly. Herod admired John. Herod even appreciated some of his sermons. It goes so far to say he heard them gladly. Herod liked being told to repent. Perhaps keeping John alive and hearing these convicting sermons gave him some relief in his conscience. The text says later he even felt regret for his sin. It says he was exceedingly sorry when he realized what he had promised. I'll tell you what, you could probably fool me into believing you were a Christian if you have a high opinion of Jesus, like my sermons, go to church, and tell me how, regret, how much regret you feel over your sin. But worse, you could probably fool yourself into thinking you are growing spiritually when you are living in, hiding, and holding on to sin. But this superficial, but this superficial spirituality will only torture your soul. And Herod, we see, it torture, he tortured his soul to death. Our Old Testament lesson vividly describes this kind of person in verses 3 and 4. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through gro- my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me and my strength dried up as by the heat of summer. Psalm 32 also, though, gives us the good news. The only anecdote to the soul that's tortured. 
The problem for Herod, it's the one thing he won't do. He won't repent. Verses 5. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Forgiveness was offered, but repentance was too costly for Herod. He would have had to give up his wife, humble himself before a man he had imprisoned, given up his lusts, the drunken parties, and his abusive power. Again, Herod liked being told to repent even though he wouldn't. You see, it's far easier to enjoy being told to repent than actually repent. Liking my sermon or Pastor Ben's sermon is not the same thing as actually repenting of your sins. And don't confuse being sorry with repentance either. Herod is sad about the consequences of his actions, not his actions. He's sad things just aren't working out the way he wanted. Repentance must mean you must turn around. You must be willing to admit you were driving in the wrong way and turn around to change it. And this isn't easy, since most of us don't even want to stop and ask for directions if we're going the wrong way. Sometimes we would honestly rather be lost. But if Jesus is moving in your conscience, if you are realizing personal sin, don't wait, don't hide, and don't try to manage it anymore. Just repent. And there is a great blessing for you if you will do so. So we see there's a great cost to joining in Jesus' mission. There is the cost of repentance for peace with God. But we must finish with a bit of a cost-benefit analysis. Um, Our mathematicians will be happy for this. When we talk about the cost of persecution, if we desire to be in Christ's ministry, or the cost of persecution, of true repentance, we could easily wonder, well, is it worth it? These are heavy costs. But our text also reminds us, though subtly, there is no earthly cost too high. Because Jesus not only shares his ministry with his disciples, not only shares suffering with his disciples, but he shares his resurrection too. This is what Herod is afraid of. When Herod hears of Jesus, he says, John, whom I've beheaded, has been raised. As far as I can tell, Herod is the first person in the Gospel of Mark who believes in the resurrection from the dead. And for him, this is disturbing. Because this means he just can't kill these prophets when they get out of control anymore. Then he's in trouble. He can't control the world anymore. His power will become undone. The world dominated by sin will come undone if this happens. If they've been given life after death, if they have power over the grave, Herod can't threaten them anymore. Because they have no need to fear death anymore. They don't need to fear the way the world has always worked. They don't need to fear tyrants or threats, because they have someone who can give them their life back. Death can't destroy them, and they can lose nothing. Resurrection is the most important preparation Jesus gives his disciples for their mission. So like John, dying for your faith is no sign of failure. It's not a sign of absolute loss, because Jesus Christ rose from the dead and shares his resurrection with his disciples. And if Jesus has power over the grave, there is no reason to fear death and anyone who would threaten you with it. Because Christ has promised a resurrected life 
in a resurrected world. This is why later the New Testament writer Paul says he presses on and by all means necessary he seeks to obtain the resurrection of the dead. Resurrection will not make discipleship easy. It will make it worth it though. And Herod is the first one to suspect it might be happening. He he suspected that even though John had died, he might ultimately triumph. He knew the the sinful world had been destabilized. And for him, this was bad news because he would not give up his sin. He would not trust in Jesus. But if you will, if you will repent, if you will join Jesus, you will receive a power that can deliver you from your sin, from your shame, from the fear of death and any tyrant on earth. This is the world we live in. A world of tragedies, of cautionary tales, and they will always have their place this side of heaven. Because suffering is still universal. Repentance will always be necessary, and persecution will always be a risk. And these stories remind us how desperately we need a power from beyond this world. This is the message of so much of the writing of the author Flannery O'Connor. Anyone familiar with her writing? No? I'll tell you a little bit about her. She lived in the last century. She was a southern writer and wrote stories set in the south. But really they were set in a de-idealized dark world. Her stories were about the vacuum many people in the South felt of morality as they faced the poverty, alienation, racism, violence. And her stories almost always had a twist ending. It was actually worse than you thought in the beginning. The characters in her books were not anyone you would ever look up to. They seemed to me to exist on a range from deeply flawed to unsettlingly evil. Though she had faith, She never thought Christ's work promised easy solution to today's problems, but that it was the only possible solution to the darkness she saw pervading all the world. In one of her most famous stories, A Good Man is Hard to Find, she makes this point through a hardened murder named The Misfit. When I read her books, I always read them in a southern accent in my head, and I will not quote it that way to you now, though. Jesus was the only one that ever raised the dead, the misfit continued, and he shouldn't have done it. He's shown everything off balance. If he did what he said, then there's nothing for you to do but throw away everything and follow him. And if he didn't, then there's nothing for you to do but enjoy the few minutes left the best way you can by killing somebody or burning down a house or doing some other meanness. If he didn't, no pleasure, just meanness. Jesus has thrown the sinful world off balance. Herod and the misfit knew it, and they knew no evil or power could erase him. Because sin will not continue forever, death will not get the last word. And for Herod, this was a threat to his kingdom, to his sin, to the way he handled John the Baptist, to his relationship, and to his guilty conscience. And no evil, no suffering can ever erase Jesus because he rose from the dead. And this can make all the difference for you. So if you realize there's something so wrong in the world, we can't fix it. 
If you know you are not okay, if you know you have real sin, if you know you have been going in the wrong direction, today you can find grace. Because Jesus' resurrection has changed the direction of everything. There is hope, no matter what it costs you to follow him, no matter what cross you are bearing, no matter what comforts you've lost, no matter what shame you endure for confessing your sin, no matter what relationships you lose for the sake of the biblical faith, no matter how difficult the road of faith and repentance is, the cost is never too high. Because Jesus has overcome sin. Jesus has overcome evil and death. But it doesn't make it easy. But in a idealized world of suffering and tragedies, if he did what he said, then there's nothing for you to do but throw everything away and follow him. Amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for those of us who need to repent. I pray we will hear the call of John the Baptist from beyond the grave. And that we will obey the voice of the Spirit, that we may have peace with God. I pray for those who need to hear the heed and call to ministry, that they will count the cost and share in the yoke of John and Jesus and his apostles, and that they will be courageous. And I pray that all of us will be strengthened to do whatever it takes to know Jesus Christ and his resurrection. In his name and to his glory we pray. Amen.